the baby. Christmas is about a baby. I, I, I want to I, I I bring us back to this idea that, that not only the church, but the whole world is waiting for baby Jesus at Christmas. But, but there's stuff that happens before that that we've got to know the stuff that happens before that to appreciate it when it happens. And that's, that's really what we talked about a couple weeks ago. And, and the, the whole summary of it is, that, and, and it was the prophet Isaiah that did it, probably the best of, of all of the Old Testament, is that we can't appreciate the good of Christmas unless we remember and hold on to the bad. I mean, you can't, you can't appreciate this high unless you remember this low. Because otherwise, it's... it's I mean, that, that kind of memory loss of the bad stuff kind of reduces the significance of the good stuff. And that's what the prophet Isaiah says. There's going to be a day that's great, but, but before that day comes, hold on to the fact that it's really bad now, right? And then, and then last week, John the Baptist is this perfect reminder of the fact that God then and still today uses messengers, God sends messages. And, and I, don't, I, didn't, I, don't have a, I don't have a fancy way of saying it except that in my life, repeatedly, when the big thing has come, when I have had clarity, I'm able to look back and go, oh my gosh, yeah, yeah, that's what they were saying. And that's what that meant. God still uses messages. And then, and then today, to, today we're, we're, we're getting closer to the baby being born. But, but we start really in a peculiar place. Matthew's gospel opens this way, and I invite you to turn, uh, to turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 1 in the Bibles that you brought with you or in, uh, in the devices that you uh, read the Bible from or, or there on the screens. And uh, what I'd like to do, with your permission, is I'd like to just sort of do a Bible study for the first, or around the first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel. Uh, it's really chock full. I won't begin to do it justice, but, but, there, but he's doing some things that I think are significant to the way we have to prepare ourselves for what is to come at Christmas. And it begins this way. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. A record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Now, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Aram. Aram was the father of Abinadab. Abinadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Before I go any further, I need you to know there's going to be six more names that I completely and utterly butcher. Are you okay with that? Because so far I've butchered two of them, okay? Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse. Now, everybody calm down. Jesse was the father of, say it with me, David. That's a big deal. The king. This is, this is sort of this, uh, this, this, this first third of the way through the genealogy. Then it says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asaph. Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat. And I guess it's worth doing it for a third time. Jehoshaphat is my favorite name in all the Bible, right? And, and you know why, because it's amazing. And I tried not once, but twice to have my children named Jehoshaphat. 
Because, I mean, sure, Sam Hagen is nice, and Jack Hagen is nice, and I know many of you are going, yeah, but when you see them, they look like a Sam and a Jack, and I'm like, yeah, but if, their boy, if either one of their names was Jehoshaphat, think of what that boy could have done. I mean, Jehoshaphat Hagen. Wow! I mean, the, the, there would be no end to just the possibilities. All right, there in verse 8. Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram. Joram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Amos. Amos was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. This was the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud. Abiud was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Akam. Akam was the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Mathen. Mathen was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And before you clap, ready, because it's over, One more sentence. Matthew says, So there were 14 generations from Abraham to David. 14 generations from David to the exile to Babylon. And finally, 14 generations from the exile to Babylon to the Christ. This is the word of God for we the people of God. And we say together, thanks be to God. Matthew gives it all to us. But the peculiar thing is, why this? And why now? I mean, if you're going to tell a story and you want people to pay attention, is this the most effective means of keeping their attention? Everybody in one voice say, no. And, 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 yet, and yet there it is. The inspired word of God. This is Matthew working on God's behalf to tell the story of Jesus. And he says you can't tell it without these names. Now, let me say a couple of notes before I get into the, to the middle of it. And, and the first note is about the first sentence. And then I, the second note will be about the last, the last verse. The first verse is peculiar, right? By some, counts, by some counts, this genealogy includes 80 different names or refers to 80 different people. But the first verse, when he's sort of giving a summary opening, it only has two names. Why those two names? Can you throw it up there? Verse Matthew 1.1, it says that this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ. And it says, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, we know he's not the son of David. It's referring to the lineage of David, and it's referring to the lineage of Abraham. But why pick up in the in the great lineage of Jesus, just those two names. Here's why. Because, because the promise made to David is that there would be one in his lineage to come who would restore the fortunes of the Jews. So this is Matthew writing to all of the Jewish people who could possibly hear and saying to them, listen, listen, You know how you've been waiting for one to come? Before the story starts, I'm telling you, he's the one. You don't have to wait to the end of the book. You don't have to wait to the end of the movie. You don't have to wait till the sequel. I'm telling you ahead of time, he's the one. He's the one that that God has promised to the Jews. 
Jesus, the son of David. But bigger than just a story for the Jews, he includes the name of Abraham. See, now, Abraham would have been in this this Hebrew, Israelite, Jewish lineage, but more than that, there was a promise that God made to Abraham, and the promise went like this. I will bless you, and I will make your descendants great, and through your descendants, ready for this? All the nations of the world will be blessed. So this is Matthew saying, hey, God made one promise to one people, but he made a bigger promise before that, and it's to all people. And here's the thing. If you're in the room right now, you're thankful. You're thankful that Jesus is God keeping his promise to all people because we wouldn't be here if it weren't for For right here, what's happening? Now you get to the end of the genealogy and there's this kind of peculiar, can you throw that up there? Verse 17, there's this kind of peculiar like uh, summary statement and it's kind of peculiar for two or three levels. He says, um, so there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile and 14 generations from the exile to Babylon to the Christ. Would we all agree that for Matthew, the number 14 is a big deal? Would you agree with that? Because he said it three times. Now, here's the evidence it's a really big deal, and it's going to shock and maybe offend two or three of you in the room. Matthew's wrong. Matthew's wrong. Or put another way, the actual history doesn't line up with what what this part of the Bible says. And, And here's the thing. Before you think it's me that's saying that, Every Bible commentator worth their salt, which is basically all of them, agrees with that. See, like, like for, instance, uh, for instance, the first section is like 600 years. The next section is like 400 to 450 years. And the last section is 750 years. You can't get from here to 750 years later with just 14 generations. I mean, you, you can't even get... You can't even get close. You can't get 400 years, even the shortest of the three distances, with just 14 generations. But not only that, there is a section in the the section I just read where it makes reference to Jehoshaphat being the father of Joram, Joram being the father of Uzziah. There's this section where, where... we know for a fact from the Bible that, like, that, that, that this guy wasn't the father of the next guy listed. He was like the great-great-grandfather. Like Matthew deliberately, deliberately left out three verses, excuse me, three generations. Which begs the question, why would he do that? And, and here's the best answer I've got. Because Matthew's not setting out to offer us a precise history. His point is not to say that, 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 that this is exactly how it went. His point is to say that in all of this, God is at work. And, and one of the little subtle ways that God is at work, one of the little subtle nods that that. Matthew gives to what God is doing in Jesus Christ and how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the very promises that were made ancient is the fact that the number 14 is actually a symbol of something even bigger. The number 14, you'll all agree, 
uh, can, be, can be derived by adding 4 plus 6 plus 4. Do we agree? 4 plus 6 plus 4 adds up to 14. Good, good. You didn't have to pull out your calculators for that, which you can find on your phones now. <clears throat> but here's the fascinating thing. Two things about the Hebrew that Matthew would have been working with is, number one, numbers didn't actually have numbers. They were just given words, right? So that they, they were given letters, in fact. Numbers were just given letters. That's fact number one. And number two, when it came to words themselves in the Hebrew, they never used vowels. Many of you know this, right? But like uh, we would refer to, the, we refer to the name of God as Yahweh, but a, a, a good Hebrew would, uh, would write out the letters yod Hey vah Hey. They would leave out the A and the E because they didn't use vowels in the Hebrew. So here's the thing. If you take the most significant name, the one that anchors the whole history of, of what Matthew is trying to convey here to the Jews, if you take that name and you drop out the first vowel and the last vowel and you consider the fact that in the Hebrew, the D is equal to four and the V is equal to six, what Matthew is saying is that Jesus is the fulfillment of 14, which is another way of writing out David. Not once, not twice, three times. Matthew is typing out the Morse code. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one. The Messiah, the son of David, over and over and over again. And all of God's people... All about God's people who were waiting for this day to come, who were waiting for this baby to be born, who read this that way, say, he's the one. This is, this is Matthew trying to explain that God is not working on accident here, that God is extremely intentional, that nothing, that nothing that happens, nothing that happens is on accident. Even, listen to this, even even when it seems like the story should go in a straight line and it has to detour to keep going, that is God at work. And the evidence of that, well, the evidence of that is, is phenomenal. One of the things that's fascinating about this genealogy, again, it's Matthew's way of starting the story of Jesus. One of the, one of the things that's fascinating about this genealogy is that it's not right by including women. A, a genealogy written at the time that it was in the first century in Rome, or for that matter in Palestine, a genealogy would have never included women for a host of reasons. But the biggest one being is that women were never the winners. And who writes history? Who writes history? The winners write the history. So why would women be included in this? I mean, women had no power. Women were oppressed. Women were considered property. And right now, if you're a woman in the room and you're offended by all the stuff I just said, you're darn right. I mean it. You're supposed to be offended. And yet, and yet Matthew defies convention. And includes women, five different women, which begs the question, why? 
Why would he break the norm? Why would he break the rules to include women in the genealogy? He's, he's already shown that, 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 that he's going to make it to fit what he needs it to fit, 14 verses 17 or 14 verses 27, whatever the actual numbers ha- happen to be. I mean, he's already, he's already shown that he's willing to, to make it fit whatever he needs it to fit. Why does he include the girls? Now listen to this. It's because Matthew knows you can't tell the story of God saving the world without the women. And at this moment right here, I need every man in the room to say, you got that right. Thank you, thank you. You could say it louder because they're listening. <laughs> you got that right. You, Matthew knows you can't tell the story of God saving the world without the women. And, and the women he includes are phenomenal. And, and I don't have time to go into all of them, but the story of Tamar, the first one, I can't tell them all uh, and give them the justice they need, but this, the story of Tamar is a story of a woman who was married to the oldest son of Judah. His name was Er, and Er, E-E-R, Er, um, and Er, it says in the Bible, was so bad that God just had him die. But he died before he and Tamar had any children. There was a policy, there was a plan in place in the time of, uh, you know, of, of the early um, Hebrew people. There was, a, there was a place for her to get connected to the family so that she could provide an offspring and she could be included in the family. But her father-in-law didn't follow through with it. He didn't keep his end of the bargain to protect her. She was a woman and she needed to be protected and he didn't do it. So she took matters, shall we say, into her own hands. Because her father-in-law was going to have her thrown out and counted for nothing in the eyes of society. But she was too smart and too cunning for that. Little did he know that it had to happen this way so that the story would keep being told. Oh, and then there's the story of Rahab. How, how shall we say it? She was um, vocationally challenged. Are you with me, Rahab? And yet, she was courageous enough to collaborate with foreign spies. And because of it, it kept the story going. Or the story of Ruth, which is a phenomenal book in the Bible. Ruth, this this forgotten, again, forgotten widow of now a deceased man who has no, no place in the economy, no place in the world, but by her persistence and her faith, She keeps the story going, and she ends up being the the grandmother of David. And then there's Bathsheba. And we know the story of Bathsheba, but, but here's the thing. Think about it. Bathsheba was determined to not just be a victim. Bathsheba turns out to be the mother of the wisest king in human history. And you get to the end of the list, and there's Mary. And, and it's worth saying that at this point in Matthew's gospel, we don't know what Mary is going to do. We don't know what twist and turn in the story Mary is going to be a part of. But I can say this. Of all of the history of God's people, there was no woman that experienced a greater surprise than Mary. To be engaged but not yet married to Joseph and have an angel come and say, you're going to have a baby. And her response is, but that's not how it works, angel. 
And he's like, I know how it works, and you're going to have a baby. It's fascinating. This is the way that Matthew starts the story of a baby being born. And the interesting thing, and this is the way I want to sort of wrap it up, the interesting thing is that, that every one of the names that have been read represents an adult who was first born as a baby. I mean, that's the way the world works. And you're going, well, that's kind of silly of you, but it is. My, my parents aren't here this morning. They're in worship over in Statesboro. And so I can say the year that they were born. My parents were both born, because if they were here, I wouldn't say that. Are we all on the same page? And you're not going to repeat the fact that I tell you all how old they are. My parents were born in uh, the summer of 1946. So when you think back in American history, and you, and you back up nine months before the summer of 1946, would you say that the prospects for the United States of America were low or high? They were extremely high. Because it was in early 1945 that we had ended the war. At the end of 1945, are you with me? At the end of 1945, there was, there was more optimism, and here's the word, hope about the future than probably at any point in our American history. There was more hope about the future of our country and about the future of the world because World War II did what to establish um, American dominance? I mean, we were the most powerful country on the planet. And not only that, not only that, we had beaten our, our enemies, but we were now in the plan, we were in the early stages of putting together a plan to restore those nations that we had beaten. I mean, that's, that's what the Marshall Plan was going to be doing. That's, that's, that's what the League of Nations was going to be doing. That's what we were doing with, with Japan. You could say that it makes perfect sense that my parents were born in 1946 because their parents had a tremendous amount of hope in the future, right? A tremendous amount of hope in the future. You could say it made perfect sense for my parents to be born in 1946, but the fascinating thing is that I, that I was talking to one of my friends this week. He happens to be a professor in the school that I'm finishing my doctorate in, and this, this professor, Tribble, he's telling me, and I don't know how we got on this subject, out of the blue, he's telling me that of all the years, his parents were born in late 1930. In the last few months, of 1930. Both his parents born in the same year, 1930. Now, you take out your American history, what was the outlook on the future in 1930? It was zero. Because it was in October of 1929 that that a day was so bad, they referred to it as black, and it had nothing to do with shopping at Walmart. People, people jumping out of buildings. People walking away, walking away from investments because they had dried up to zero. And yet, and yet his grandparents had enough hope in the world that they brought babies into the world. Think about that. 
See, that's, that's the thing about this list, is that every name represents a baby. And every baby represents a conscious hope in the future. This, this, the way that I keep saying it in my mind is, babies are the very evidence of hope. Babies are the evidence of hope. Every mother, every father that brings a child into the world has hope in the future. Which brings us to the end. The end of the genealogy says that Jesus will be born. But the fascinating thing is that there was, there was no choice by the mother and there was no choice by Joseph, right? Right? And Jesus being born. Who made the choice that Jesus would be born then? God, in that moment, had hope in the future. And that's what the story says. Is that God looks out on the future and says, this is exactly the right time that hope would be born. This is exactly the right time that hope would take on flesh. The world in this moment, the world in this moment needs the evidence of my hopefulness. And I don't want to give away the rest of the story, but Jesus, Jesus. Matthew chooses a list of 42 generations that include women and men and it all ends on the doorsteps of this woman who would have been forgotten about Mary and this man who was completely shocked by the news that he heard and all of it points back to the evidence that God has hope in the future let's pray Lord, we are alive in a time in which hope is often scarce, in which optimism about the future is difficult to find. We are alive at a time, at a season, at a transition in which too many people in the world look to tomorrow and the day after and the day after and they don't see they don't see the hope that we're referring to and yet babies are the evidence of that hope and your history is the is the evidence of that hope for you or the god one generation after another whose power is on display my prayer for all of us is that we would commit to being people of such hope. That when Christmas arrives, we would have turned our lives over to that kind of hope. The hope that says, whatever might come, we believe that God is in control. 
Lord, because of you, tomorrow is bright. Lord, touch our hearts. Give us courage. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen and amen.